Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Almost anything we do today, from what we watch, to where we go, to who we communicate with, leaves behind a trail of data. At the roundabout, take the second exit. According to one estimate, the total volume of data worldwide is now around 100 trillion gigabytes, double the amount three years ago. Back in the mid-2000s, Silicon Valley geeks began describing data as the new oil powering the digital economy. In the years that followed, companies raced to get their hands on the stuff. And soon, we all started noticing eerily well-targeted ads following us around the web. With time, a privacy backlash gained steam. Facebook says the privacy of individuals is paramount and it bills itself as an open and transparent platform. Yet there is growing anger as to how it allowed the harvesting of 50 million of its users' private profiles. When it emerged that the personal data of millions of Facebook users was collected without their consent by a company called Cambridge Analytica and used to create political ads, it was seen by many as a step too far. On top of new data regulations introduced in Europe and elsewhere, companies like Apple began to clamp down on how data was gathered and used, both on its Safari browser and in apps installed on its devices. When you're using apps on your iPhone, you may start to see this. It's the new app tracking transparency prompt. It's a feature that gives you a choice. By asking users to select whether or not to allow an app to track them across other apps and websites, Apple threw the data industry into disarray. Whatever you choose is up to you. But at Apple, we believe that you should have a choice. Yet now, a new and different scramble for data has begun. Instead of hunting for highly personalised data, companies building the latest generation of AI models are hoovering up unprecedented volumes of aggregated information wherever they can find it. And that is reopening thorny questions of who owns what. So, if data is the new oil, what is it worth and who does it benefit? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In New York, I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, the changing value of data. First, we hear how the way companies are collecting our data is changing. Many browsers have stopped using cookies. Google has clamped down on third-party cookies as well. And likewise, Meta understands that the gig is up. Then, one of the biggest names in advertising tells us how that's making life harder for marketers. What it means is the value of that data has been depreciated because it's more general and more aggregated. Finally, we explore the new frontier of data collection and trade in the development of artificial intelligence. 
they've kind of consumed the internet. And as the models get better and better, they need ever-increasing amounts of special data. Hey, Mike. Hey, Alice. Hello. Hey, Tom. So I think I'm going to mix things up a little this week and start by asking not about where you've been or what you've written, but what you've bought recently. Have either of you made any particularly noteworthy online purchases of late? It's a bit of a probing question. Could get quite revealing. Surely this is just Tom trying to gain some uh, ammo about our habits to retaliate against our relentless teasing of his grocery shopping habits. Yeah, possibly. You'll, uh, you'll have to wait to find out. Well, uh, given I recently moved house, I've made a couple of significant furniture purchases over the past couple of months. But I think literally my most recent purchase was, for my sins, a medley of bits and bobs from Amazon. So... Uh, I opened up my Amazon app and my last order included some long matches for lighting candles, a three-foot roller painting brush extension pole, a DeWalt six-inch circular saw blade and some body moisturising oil. So uh, infer from that list what you will. I think initially when you said long matches and the three-foot roller brush, I thought you were trying to create some sort of flaming torch. (laughs) I think my biggest recent purchase was some linen shirts crucial piece of workwear for Singapore's tropical temperatures. I'm not usually much of a buying clothes online person because of the sizing and whatnot. I get annoyed having to send it back. But these are from an outlet that I already own things from. What about you, Tom? What's your latest buy? Well, I feel like I should probably choose my words carefully here, given past grillings on the show. But listeners must be made aware that I am, in fact, very normal and very cool. So I probably (laughs) won't focus on all those audiobooks I buy, but instead uh, draw your attention to the new ski outfit I just bought in eager anticipation of next year's season. I love that you just shift all audiobook listeners by implying that they must not be very normal or very cool. Great knife in the side of them. Yes, it's very cool to go skiing, Tom. Well done. Do you get a discount on your uh, winter sports gear if you buy it in the summer or are you just so excited that you couldn't wait? No, you do get some very generous discounts, although unfortunately... The set of options is somewhat more limited. But just thinking about what we've all bought there, so Alice, your bits and bobs from Amazon, Mike, your linen shirts, and my ski suit. Together we could fight crime. (laughs) (laughs) We definitely sound like a crime-fighting superhero gang. But in the process of searching for and buying those items, we all left a little trace of who we are online, and that's potentially valuable information for someone somewhere out there. Yeah, I feel like people know that this happens. We give companies all sorts of information when we fill in those online checkout forms. And we're constantly reminded that we're being tracked by all of these cookie consent boxes that pop up every time we visit a new web page. So even if it's vaguely disquieting, I think people know that they're being tracked all over the web. I'm sure we've all had the experience of having bought something from one website and then having the adverts for the exact same item pop up subsequently on on literally every other website you visit for days or weeks afterwards, giving rise to the rather common belief, seemingly almost universal among people I know, that your phone is listening to your conversations rather than just seeing what things you've ordered on the internet. Yeah. And if your phone were really smart, it might have clocked that you just bought something. Because truly, the worst time to advertise the sofa to me is immediately after I bought one, especially if it's the one that I just bought. Well, actually, that sort of thing might start happening a lot less because the way that personal data is gathered and traded is changing. And here to talk us through all of this is our resident data expert, Ken Kukie. 
He's the deputy executive editor at The Economist and the author of several books on data and AI. So you can't get more qualified than that, really. Ken, welcome to Money Talks. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. Could you start by describing for us what types of data are collected on us today? Let's start with what data is. It's empirical evidence of reality that we've decided to collect and record in a fixed media in an alphanumeric state. So it could be our heartbeat, it could be the wind, it could be the temperature, it could be our location. It was always hard to collect data, but something shifted when we put it all onto a digital platform. It became really easy to collect data. In fact, we could collect data without even trying, almost as a byproduct of doing everything else we were doing. And suddenly what was happening because of the internet and the online advertising ecosystem of the internet, it became a huge industry and there was an absolute scramble to collect as much data as possible. And so we were off to the races for collecting information and using it to track us. And some of our listeners might have come across the term cookie before in the context of data tracking. What are cookies? Cookies are basically a piece of software code that is used to identify a user on a website. It was created around the 1990s as a way of letting the publisher of the site know, whether it's an e-commerce merchant or a newspaper, that the person had been there before. And it was really important because before then, every interaction between a website and an individual was anonymous. Also, there was a huge infrastructure, maybe a commercial ecosystem of businesses, of data brokers who were taking the data from one site and from another site, bringing them together. You could imagine a gourmet food site and a healthcare site to identify that you're eating lots of fatty foods and you need to go to the gym because you have all these maladies and comorbidities due to that and bringing it together in a way that people felt really creeped out by. Today, we make a distinction between first-party cookies and third-party cookies. First-party cookies are ones that you collect on your own website if you are a website owner, and it relates to that person who you can see and have visibility on. So third-party cookies are trackers that are on your website but belong to someone else, not the website owner who's managing the cookies for their own performance issues and understanding the customer issues. Now, the person who goes to the website has a relationship with that website. That's why they're there. But the third-party cookie is collecting that data and bringing it off to someone else. So it's a little bit more controversial. Ken, there's this saying that's cropped up in the last few years that if something is free, then you're the product. And I suppose the less cynical view of that is that Google or Instagram, they may be collecting data on you and profiting from that, but you're also getting a free service in return. So could you describe for us where we are today in terms of this question of who owns your data? You know, it's not very clear, and you'd have to ask what data. It depends on where you are as well. People in Europe are covered under the GDPR, which is the European Union's rules on data protection and privacy, and it gives ostensibly individuals the rights to their data, the ownership rights, if you will, of their data. So they have to deliberately consent to giving it off to a third party through the cookie consent system online and in other ways as well. The consent has to be meaningful as well. So you can't just be buried in the terms of services as it typically was done in the past. But if you're an American or you're in Asia, you don't have those same, if you will, ownership rights to your data. But the good news is that by enforcing these sorts of rules, it requires the data collector 
the company that collects and then later processes the data to be much more careful in knowing the inventory of what they're collecting, how it's stored, that is protected, and they can offer access rights to individuals who care about it. In the past few years, we've also seen a number of initiatives from the tech platforms, most notably Apple, but also Google, that have started to reshape the way that data is collected and used. Could you just talk us through those and how those are impacting the ecosystem around data? So there's been a real clampdown on the use of cookies. The clampdown you can see everywhere. When you download an app from the Apple App Store, Apple asks you whether you agree to be tracked by that app or whether you'd say no. And 80% of people say no, do not track. Likewise, many browsers have stopped using cookies. Google has clamped down on third-party cookies as well. They still allow it in certain forms. And likewise, Meta understands that the gig is up. And so the golden day of cookies in which they were going to be flourishing everywhere and there was going to be an ecosystem of real-time bidding for advertisements from data that comes from one knows not where, those days are going to be over pretty soon. And so who wins and who loses from those changes? So the winner is first going to be the consumer. They are going to don't have that creeped out feeling of ads that track them on every website that they go to. The other win is probably going to be big tech. And the reason why is that as the shift away from third-party data and towards first-party data becomes more pronounced, the largest platforms who know the most about consumers are going to flourish by using their own data. Now, to be sure, the effectiveness of the ads will not be as good. Because if you can't bring in third-party data that will improve the accuracy of the advertisement, the ads won't be as good. And the losers, no one's going to actually lose per se, but I think life is going to be a little bit harder for smaller merchants online who've been relying on the effectiveness of good click-through rates and low-priced advertisements that are well-targeted. As targeting becomes a little bit more blurry, their effectiveness will be a little bit worse. So, Ken, please stick around and we will come back to you shortly. Absolutely. To hear more about how the advertising industry has been reshaped by data and is adapting to the recent shifts, I spoke to Sir Martin Sorrell, one of the grandees of the industry. He founded WPP, the world's largest advertising and PR group, and is now executive chairman of S4 Capital, a digital advertising and marketing services business. Sir Martin, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Pleasure. You've been in the ad business for a number of decades now. I was hoping you could start by telling us a bit about how the use of data has changed in your business over the years that you've been involved in it. So the late 60s, early 70s, the strategy and the creative uh, was the focus and the account management was the focus. And data was never front and center. Now it's front and center. It's the oil, the engine oil, if you like of what we do. But in those days, it was very much, you know, the Nielsen ratings. When I was at Glendening Associates, you know, we poured over the Nielsen ratings. And so we did have product data and brand data in those days, but it never had the prominence that it has today. And so data has become really central to the ad business. Could you talk us through what the state of play is today and how you use data to drive what you do as an advertiser? So, for example, you know, for a campaign that we would do for Netflix, is my favourite example, we might have produced about 1.6 million different, in theory, different creative executions which we can use 
on a one-to-one basis, on a personalized basis. So this is personalized communication at scale. So for example, Tom, we know you're a Manchester United supporter. So we feed you a piece of content that compares Narcos to a football team or a sporting event. We know you like business, you read The Economist or whatever. We know that you're interested in business, so we compare Narcos to a business and see what your reaction is to that, You know whether you subscribe, whether you don't, actually whether you started to look at it. I think the Netflix model actually is the most powerful model I've come across and one that uh, I think will be increasingly adopted and adapted. Can you talk us through, from a marketer's perspective, what types of data points are most valuable? Well, I think the most is the behavioural, what each individual's interests, media habits, product purchasing, service purchasing habits, you know, what makes Tom tick, if you like, what makes Martin tick, what are our emotional likes and dislikes. We like to understand the behavior in all ways of people, to aim to try and understand what is the best way, the best time and the best place to reach a consumer. And our ability to do that in an age where we can reach them on an individual one-on-one basis, that is the holy grail. And what are the different sources that companies have for gathering data on consumers? Well, I I think the sources of data are primarily now, or will be in the future, the platforms and the first-party data, that is the client data. You know, if you're an LVMH, they have a huge amount of data on luxury purchases. So they have data, they have a relationship, they know that Tom buys handbags for his girlfriend or his partner or whatever, from the store in London or New York or wherever it happens to be. So there's the first-party data. That's one source. There's the signals from the platforms. So the platforms, those tech platforms, have signals on your habits. You know, you might, as we said before, you might be interested in football and Manchester United. You might be interested in business and The Economist. So you gauge consumers' tastes and you have those signals. And then a third sources, data brokers and other third-party sources. Those are the other sources. And that data can be purchased, or has historically been able to purchase. So people will go to American Express, and American Express will provide them with data. And of course, it's in their terms and conditions. And what's happening is that third area, the third party is being phased out, not completely being phased out, and the effectiveness is being Uh, phased out. And what is causing that shift away from third-party data? One is Apple insisting on privacy and consumer privacy and therefore moving from an individual one-on-one basis to a cohort basis. So you get a pool of data of people from similar backgrounds and similar demographics, but there's a pool of them. And then the second thing is, or the more important thing probably, is Google getting rid of third-party cookies. But those two things are driving clients to rely almost totally on first-party data, making sure that the data they have, the customer data they have, is uh, integrated and works well together. And this is a big problem, getting all the data platforms that you have to talk to one another. Most of the companies we deal with 
uh, larger enterprises which have grown by acquisition or even organically and had different CIOs or CTOs who've got different platforms and they don't talk to one another. And what has that move that you describe to cohort data sets done to the value of data from a marketer's perspective? They are an, an alternative. Cohorts are an alternative, but they have several meaningful drawbacks. They require a massive first-party data set, and it's not feasible to target or measure on the same level of granularity as you're setting for lowest common denominator amongst groups of dozens or hundreds of users. So in other words, the fact that you're aggregating the group, it's not by individual, reduces the value and the quality. So all the routes that Apple and Google have taken are being done for sound reasons and good reasons. But what it means is the value of that data has been depreciated because it's more general and more aggregated. So, Martin, thanks very much for speaking to Money Talks. Pleasure. Thank you. So, Alice, Mike, it strikes me that the old days of online data collection being this kind of wild west of surveillance and opaque deal-making may finally be coming to an end, partly because of regulation, but perhaps more importantly because of the decisions being made by the tech giants, particularly Apple and Google. And whether or not you think that's a a cynical power play by those firms, the upshot is that the data industry, or at least the part of it that's focused on online advertising, has now very much moved into the consolidation phase that we see in pretty much every industry as it matures. Yeah, the personalization of ads is one of the mammoth business stories of our generation, I think. You know, everyone's pretty well aware now that the romantic idea everyone holds about ad campaigns like the sort of madman era of slogan genius they've largely been replaced by widgets that track you all over the web tailored political messaging or sort of mass spending on targeted youtube ads and things and um that story has gone into a lot of places so the decline of traditional media the rise of the tech giants But I was interested to hear Sir Martin talk about some of the recent changes to that dynamic that privacy concerns have made firms warier of or less able to rely on third party data. And that suggests that this sort of decades long trend is finally meeting some resistance. I guess I'm uh, yet again in the position of obsequiously shilling on behalf of massive corporate interests. But I know I'm not in the majority on this. I don't think I am anyway. But I sometimes think we skim over the benefits of these very uh, finely targeted sometimes and data-rich advertising campaigns. I have no doubt that the worries about data security and things are sincere, but I actually quite like when I'm advertised products that I might, heaven forbid, actually want to purchase. I'm stopping fairly regularly and saying, ah, yeah, I was actually, you know, in the market for shoes like that. I do buy those sort of electronics. I find the advertising experience less obtrusive precisely because it seems to be tailored toward things I might actually buy. And sometimes I do. I don't really mind that so much. Like Alice with her sofa, the only annoying thing is when you buy a book and the advert then follows you around the internet for weeks trying to get you to buy the same book, which again is the thing that you only want one of. And it feels like it shouldn't be that difficult to work around the this item is something you only want one of. So maybe Martin Sorrell can help us out with that. 
Well, speaking of books, I have really been enjoying the culture section of the paper of late, and I'm looking forward this week to reading a piece by Catherine Nixie, which dissects what traits best-selling books tend to have in common with each other. Apparently, it helps if authors publish extremely frequently and also uh, write for children. So uh, you should expect our new daily show, Money Babbles, coming to you very soon. <laughs> You can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is if you're not a subscriber already. And after the break, we delve into the new data land grab that's underway in Silicon Valley. As firms race to get hold of data by hook or by crook in order to train a new generation of AI models. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the break, we heard how the depersonalization of online data is affecting its value to the marketing companies that rely on it. But data does not always need to be highly personalized to be of value. And marketers are not the only group that are interested in it. In fact, demand for massive aggregated data sets of words, images, songs, and more is currently soaring as AI companies use them to train the latest generation of their models. But that is generating issues of its own, as those creating that data look to get their fair share of the value. To find out more, I spoke with Dennis Cinelli. He's the CFO of Scale AI, which is a company that helps firms ready their data sets to use in training AI models. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thanks for having me, Tom. So, Dennis, the large language models powering generative AI are built off enormous amounts of data. So I wondered if you could just start by giving us a bit of a sense of how much information is being ingested into these latest models and why such large volumes of data are important. Yeah, I mean, if you think about large language models or AI in general, right, there's three things you need to build a model that works. You need an algorithm, you need compute, and you need ever-increasing amounts of data. And historically, data was finding ways to scrape data from the internet, right? But we're kind of entering this sort of post-training world, you know, where pre-training was, how do I get enormous amounts of data, petabytes amounts of data? In the AI nomenclature, it's called tokens, lots of tokens. How do I get lots and lots of data and help my model learn? Now we're sort of entering this post-training era where we've kind of consumed the internet. And as the models get better and better, they need ever-increasing amounts of special data, proprietary data, expert data, right? If you want your model to be better in all the domains of human knowledge, you're not going to only find that on the internet. 
And you talked there about AI model builders having already scraped much of what's kind of out there on the internet. And we've seen companies like OpenAI, for instance, finding themselves caught up in copyright lawsuits as a result. I guess I'm wondering how that's likely to impact the way that AI companies secure more data going forward. You know, you're sort of seeing this play out in the news with sort of lawsuits, but you know, more and more, I think the companies recognize they want to be good actors in this space. I think there's going to be interesting business models, you know, publishing companies, media companies. It potentially gives them some new avenues to monetize their content. And I think you're seeing a lot of the quasi-free troves of data being now guarded off. Companies that previously had this data sort of more freely available on the internet are walling it off. Twitter and Reddit are great examples of that because the price and the value of that data is becoming a lot higher. And then I think you're going to see them as they go into enterprise and government use cases. These enterprises have vast troves of data. And you know what they're doing now is taking these models, taking these base capabilities, and then they're going to fine-tune on top of that, make these models even better for them. So we're seeing a lot of enterprises, commercial enterprises, even the government, realize the value of their data and take that more seriously. And that data is going to be a key competitive advantage for them as they think about their own AI models. So a lot of companies now are starting to train their own models off their own information for industry-specific applications. And I know you at Scale are involved in helping enterprises work out what to do with their data and how to use it to train models. Could you just give us a few examples of that? So two examples that we work on. One is in the law space. One very tangible use case that lawyers spend a ton of time on is contract comparisons. And so what we can do is take that law firm's contracts, we can help them connect into their databases. And so we take their specific data sets and allow them to quickly create an AI model that helps them do contract comparison, you know, saving hours and hours of time. Another great example is with Chegg, which is a company we recently announced a partnership with, we've been helping them build generative AI tutors across 20 plus domains of human knowledge. We're able to have Chegg give us examples of questions and answers, and they have years of history on this, and we're able to help incorporate that into the model and make that model very specific to the use case for them, which is training people on passing specific tests at different education standards across these domains. I suppose one of the challenges for enterprises looking to use their own data to fine-tune models, to train models, is that historically, a lot of those data sets have been quite poorly managed. So how hard is it for companies to do this in practice? Yeah, it's a great question. Companies who have taken data seriously are in a better spot. At the same time, the benefit of these large language models is you you don't have to get all the data in a structured format. I worry more about companies that are not capturing all the data, right? that are sort of not saving it, whether it's structured or unstructured, and making sure they capture it all, obviously in the right way if they're a consumer company and with privacy standards. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thanks, Tom, for having me. I'd like to now bring back the economist's Ken Kukie. Ken, thanks for sticking around. Yeah, of course. So, Ken, we've heard about how the way data is being collected and used has changed significantly over the last few years. And the buyers of that data have also started shifting towards companies looking to train these large models on aggregated and often anonymous data. So as someone that has been following the world of data for longer than a decade now, I'd love to hear your reflections on this evolution over time. It's rather incredible. 
The big data story was premised on the idea that there was things that you could do in a large body of data that you couldn't in a smaller amount, that the change in scale led to a change in state, or that a quantitative shift led to a qualitative shift. But behind it all was about delivering something to an individual. For example, better health care, better marketing, seatbelts that were more reliable, cars that could identify that you were asleep at the wheel by the posture of your body because there were sensors in the seat. The atom, the atomic unit of the effort was the individual. You needed a large body of data, an agglomeration of data, to then pull out the discrete meaning within it. But the AI story changes that subtly. You no longer care about the sliver. It's all about agglomeration. You're compiling all of this information in order to find a trend and a pattern that will actually increase the model's effectiveness. But what is clear is that if we're collecting data and just taking data in the wild and putting it into a model, we're going to learn new things that we didn't even know was possible to ask and find out before. And as these AI model builders have been busily trying to grab as much data as they can, we've seen this kind of flurry of deal-making in recent months. For example, OpenAI reaching an agreement with the Associated Press to access its archive of stories. So I'd be curious to hear your perspective on whether we're going to see a return to a world where companies of all stripes can monetize the information they have by selling it to these companies that are trying to use data to train these large models. Yes, we're definitely going to be in this new sort of land grab era, enclosure movement of information. And like the enclosure movement, there's good and bad to it. The good is that the resource might be used better because there's clear ownership and incentive to cultivate it. The bad is that a lot of people who felt like there was an entitlement to use a commons no longer can because it's no longer a commons. It's no longer common good, but it's actually owned by someone and therefore they have to pay for it. The interesting element to this, though, is everyone thinks their data is worth a lot, and it really isn't. Individual data is worth exceptionally little, almost nothing. It's meaningless. Your health data, my health data, doesn't matter. Take your health data, my health data, and add it to 10 million other people over the last decade, now we're in business. Now it's really interesting. So the entities that agglomerate the data have something very special. But every single individual who thinks that they have a Rembrandt in the attic of their hemoglobin levels when they were in the hospital <laughs> are going to be out of luck. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. It's been great. Thank you. So, Mike, Alice, what do you guys make of what you've heard? First of all, I think Dennis's phrase that we've kind of consumed the internet is going to be sort of ringing in my ears. What a thought. <laughs> but I'm really interested in what Ken said about the idea of a sort of potential tragedy of the commons or, or an enclosure issue here. This question of who has a right to what? And the first thing that happens is this sort of attempt to parcel it off so that people who made it can make sure that they're benefiting in some way. And I must say, I find that argument a lot more compelling when it comes to something like music than I do when it comes to something like training and AI, because at least then you've got the argument that, you know, musicians or artists need an incentive to create their work. This is a completely different use from the work aside from what it's normally used for. So even calling this data mining, as it's sometimes referred to, I find sort of obfuscates the entire thing. Because, you know, the properties of minds are that once one person's mined it, nobody else can. And that isn't the case here at all. I think, honestly, to me, the intellectual argument behind the idea that 
you are owed something because someone has invented a machine that has learned something from what you invented. I find that a little bit intellectually empty. But then it's not my content, so I, I would say that. I think I also find this Commons argument the most interesting. You know, if everyone is so convinced about how valuable their data is, then there will be enough guardrails or sort of uh, gatekeeping around it at a company or at an individual level that prevents it from being as valuable as it could be if it were all joined up. When I've interviewed fintech firms or banks in America about the difference between the finance apps here and the super apps in China, where one firm like Ant has your banking relationship and it has your texting information and your social media and so on and so on, The response of the Americans has mostly been that they could never build something like that here because they're barred from using information about how much a company is selling stuff on a platform like uh, Amazon and combining that with the sort of proprietary banking information that they have to offer a company a loan at you know, a certain interest rate, which is one of the powerful use cases for the super apps in China. And in some ways, the inability of Western companies to do that feels kind of like a double-edged sword. If those Chinese tech companies could offer better loans to people because they know perhaps even better than a borrower knows whether or not that loan can be paid back, that is a useful product. But on the other hand, it does all get very, very creepy very fast. So much so that the Chinese government has obviously cracked down pretty hard on Ant and its ilk. Probably not to protect customers' privacy, but out of the sort of fear of the power that this unlimited access to sort of every piece of data about a person essentially can give you. It's always struck me that despite all of the big promises that we heard a few years ago about data being used in ways to make consumers' lives better, whether that's you know revolutionizing healthcare or, or making personal financial advice more affordable, for years it really was all about selling people more stuff. And you know, I agree with the point you made earlier, Mike, that that's not necessarily a problem, you know, finding ways to present more relevant advertising to people. But it does feel like a a missed opportunity that all those other potential areas of use for data have gone seemingly largely underexplored or underutilized. And I do wonder whether the the combination of the privacy crackdown and and the arrival of these new AI models that companies can take and then fine-tune on smaller, more focused data sets will finally start to shift the pendulum towards perhaps more productive use cases, at least from a consumer perspective. Or alternatively, maybe AI will just be used to generate ridiculously large volumes of ads targeting maybe not individuals, but narrow cohorts, and we'll be back on the path to a kind of dystopian surveillance capitalism. We'll see, I suppose. But on that cloudy note, I think it might be time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Sure, I can go first. My stat of the week this week is... 1,200 kilometres, which is the range that Toyota says its new super battery will have for its electric vehicle. It also says the super battery can be charged in around 10 minutes and will go into sort of mass production in 2027. So uh, Toyota said they had some sort of technological breakthrough with these super batteries that it and various other car manufacturers have been working on. So it sort of indicates that however useful EVs are now in a couple of years, we're going to get ones that can go twice as far and be charged in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. That is literally three times as far as the one that CATL, the Chinese battery maker, announced just a couple of weeks ago. So pretty impressive. You know, uh, that's quite a rapid rate of improvement. Looking forward to my 5,000 kilometer range EV that charges in 30 seconds coming out next week. (laughs) Well, sticking with the theme of 
revolutions in transportation. My stat of the week is 100 feet, which is just under 10 stories, which is the height of a new generation of sails that is now being added to cargo ships to reduce their carbon footprint. So we talked about decarbonizing aviation a few weeks ago, and shipping is another one of these segments of transport that has so far been quite difficult to make green given the long distances and also the weight of vessels. But in what feels to me a little bit like a return to a bygone era, Cargill, which is a big global food company, has recently retrofitted one of its cargo ships with the super sails, which are called wind wings, which the manufacturer thinks could reduce fuel usage by 30%. Windwing sounds like some sort of like nappy brand or something. <laughs> this, is, this is dreadful. I already thought this was funny enough when they were like, hey guys, maybe Chris Columbus had a trick or two how to power a boat. <laughs> You've invented sails. Well done, guys. <laughs> Those are actually both quite sort of nice, optimistic stats of the week. So it falls to me this time to say something dismal. My number is 626 billion US dollars which is the amount of potentially troubled commercial property debt maturing between this year and 2025 in the US, which is rather a lot. Potentially troubled, meaning that a company's senior debt is worth at least 80% of the entire value of the project. A little bit worrying that with bond yields as high as they are and with the US banks, small banks, so exposed to that. Yeah, I thought I'd inject the end of the show with a sense of sort of misery, a sense of impending dread that I know we love to end on. Who needs an office, you know? (laughs) Well, uh, thanks, Mike, for ending us on that very uplifting note. And with that, I'd like to thank Sir Martin Sorrell and Dennis Cinelli. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher, Marie Keyworth, and Benji Guy. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Jason Palmer. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.